Hello, everyone. You're listening to a conversation that's part of the Centre for Future Nature's series of stories on commoning and enclosure. My name is Anushka, and these conversations invite people to share their experiences, ideas and knowledge on commoning, including their already existing practices and relations that confront structures and systems of enclosure. Today, I'm joined by Nathan Oxley, the Communications Coordinator at Future Nature's. And together, we spoke to two people involved in a campaign against a proposed lithium mine in Portugal. Both activists, Carla and Francisco, take us through a journey into Covas de Boroso, the village that the mine would enclose, degrade and change forever. In 2017, London-based mining company Savannah Resources, referred to as Savannah in this episode, announced its plans to develop one of Western Europe's first large-scale lithium mines. Since then, local mobilizations have been resisting the mine. Carla and Francisco draw on their lived experiences of life and struggle in this region of northern Portugal, a place where land governance as a commons has been going throughout history. We discuss the role of emotion, memory and belonging to the land, as well as the border issues brought by the mining project, which values the village solely for what lies beneath it. Demand for lithium in Europe is predicted to grow fourfold to account for a quarter of global demand by 2030. Corvus de Boroso and other villages in places like Sweden and France have become one of the assumed sacrifice zones to make this possible. This conversation goes beyond the promise of green jobs and asks who the mine will actually benefit and what transition justice would look like beyond green capitalism. Our guests talk through the social relationships of commoning rooted to place, but also how new relationships have been cultivated through the struggle. The song you hear throughout this episode is from a demonstration camp that happened in Covachaboroso in August discussing here. I don't live there permanently, but I go back um, twice a month or even or even more often if I can. Um, but I don't live too far away. I live about 90 kilometer, kilometers away from from Kovas. Hi, my name is Francis, Francisco Vench. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Coimbra. Um, I'm doing a PhD project on feminist political ecology, working with uh, women struggling against mining projects in Portugal and in Ecuador. So my link, my connection with Pobre de Barros was in the context of this project. Uh, and I lived in Pobre de Barros for about a year uh, in 2020, 2021. And I've been coming back there uh, often since then. Carla, could you sort of introduce us a bit to Covas de Barroso? Maybe paint a picture of what the village is like, what the area is like, and just introduce us a bit to to what's going on with the mine. Sure. So um, 
Covas do Barro is, is a small village in the north uh, of Portugal. And it's quite a rural area. And most people there live off the land and they raise um, cattle and, and small animals as well. And even people that have other jobs that are not uh, necessarily related to agriculture, they still have their, their small lands, pieces of land where they raise some vegetables, fruits, things like that. So it's... It's a population that's very connected to the land. And of course, it's not a perfect place. It's got a very deficient, it doesn't have a lot of public services um, because again, it's quite in the, it's, it's quite rural. So uh, schools and health services are not very close by. We don't have that in the village itself. You always have to travel to get those kind of services. Public transport is also not very regular or not very frequent. So we've got our troubles, but people there are able to overcome, all, uh, have been able to overcome all of that for quite a few centuries now. <laughs> um It's also a community that's been quite affected like many other communities in the in the rural regions of Portugal uh, affected by the immigration so by, by mass uh, a mass exodus of people that have been going to the seaside uh, cities or else other countries so it's lost a big mass of those people um, mainly during the 60s the 70s Uh, so what, what we know is that the people who live there now actually want to live there now because they had the chance to not live there. So um, about the whole mine process, we first found out about it in 2018 and it was completely accidental. One of the people from the village, so this is a person from the village that lives in the UK. And they found out that um, there was this project to extend a mining license that was already there. And the license had been expanded and had been modified to include lithium. So this was not an information that was ever given to us by the company or by the government. It, it was a complete surprise um, and then when we started to find out we realized that the plan was to make a very large open pit mine that would be um, taking over all the natural natural resources that the people there had had so far so we started the, the, we started to gather our strengths And, and we started to fight it um, as we could. And we're still doing that five years later. Yeah, if you could just um, give us a, a picture of where things are right now. In May, the um, Portuguese Environment Agency provided a condition positive license. So uh, basically an authorization 
to for the project to go ahead, but it, they still have some um, loops and processes to they have to go through. Uh, but at this point, the the company does not own. Well, they virtually own nothing of the land. So most of the land there is still either private or uh, public um, property of everyone in the village. So yeah, that's basically where we are. Maybe Francisco wants to complete the information. I would like to add something to what Carlos said. It's about the land, the, the form, the property forms of land. I think it's important, especially here in future natures, but what Anushka was saying about commoning being so important. So Carla mentioned public lands, but in fact, we have two kinds of public lands in, in Covers of Arroz. We have public lands in the sense of belonging to the state. So it's the lands owned by the local parish. And then we have the common lands called the Baldios in Portugal. It's a very specific form of common land uh, in, in Portugal. Uh, from Portugal that is owned by the people in the in the community, especially the people who work the the land there, but also the people who reside or are from the village, as, as Carla, for example. And these lands, these Baldios, Baldios lands, are very, very important for the struggle against this project because most of the mining, the the concession given to the mine, like this area that's uh, that where they have mining rights, where Savannah has mining rights, uh, is uh, common land. So these commons are key to the process of resistance against this, this project. Yeah, Francisco, how did you come to be involved and connected with this? I would probably have to go a little back in time I, I, I was living in Ecuador for many years, since 2013 until the end of 2018, and I was pretty much involved in anti-mining struggles in, in Ecuador. That's why where I entered in contact with these struggles, I became involved first with, in connection with some territories opposing mining, mining projects, then mostly in the urban areas, trying to bring more people from urban context into this uh, struggle. And then I decided to do my PhD re related to anti-mining resistance as part as a consequence of this. It happened, just happened that this resistance was starting in Portugal as well. Uh, the moment I was deciding on my uh, on my case studies, so I decided to go and visit Covers one day, and I just first fell in love with the village. As Carlos was saying, it's probably one of the most beautiful places I have seen uh, in Portugal. People are amazing, and then I became involved with the struggle because, for me, doing research is also about getting involved in the process research with and with the people I'm doing research with. I can't just be a a mere spectator. Um, so yes, he's uh, now part of my anti-mining struggle, like part of my my process of resisting mining projects, uh, being part of this struggle in Copacabana. Super interesting. 
I was just wondering, you, you both talked about, you know, this is several years ago now that things started. Carla, I just wondered what were your first memories of it? And also, I guess, related to that, like how do people cope with the struggle being quite a long-term one, drawing out over several years and lots of battles and victories and pushbacks as well? Well, there's two very important points to that, because on the one hand, we feel like we've already delayed this for quite a few years. So their plans were um, initially to get started in 2020, I think. So we've already been able to push back and, and delay this whole process. However, it's also very tiring and I say this as someone who doesn't have to who doesn't have their livelihood in, in jeopardy so I'm not even one of the most affected ones but most my most of my family is so um, most of my friends my neighbors are so it's the community that I, that I've known all my life and I still feel like I'm very much a part of it so it's notorious that at least uh, a a big majority of people are against this but the struggle is tiring and uh, sometimes it feels like we're um, alone Uh, like nobody is listening to us Uh, like the political and social uh, powers are not uh, on our side however I think that it brings the community closer. So everyone relies on each other. Uh, but, you know, it it's exhausting and frustrating sometimes. And it, it does cause trouble. It does cause trouble in the social fabric of the village. It, in some cases, it puts neighbors against neighbors and family members against family members. And it's terrible because... You know, conflict is already a part of the human experience. But when the conflict is brought to you by something outside of your of your usual life, of your usually usual day to day, and it's a, a lot, it's more difficult to cope with. So, yeah, it hasn't been a great experience in that sense, in the sense that it does put people against each other sometimes or it exhausts their uh, resources and also their energy like the the all kinds of energy the physical one but also the emotional energy that they have it's a big part of what they what we live now is it's it's just knowing that tomorrow is another day that we're going to struggle (laughs) however it's not all bad Okay, so it does bring the community together. It does bring a lot of people from outside of our community into it. Uh, Francisco has lived there and is a regular visitor. Well, he's not a visitor anymore. He's he's from Cabo's Rosa <laughs> officially, as far as we're concerned. But there are uh, there are a lot of people that heard of, about Colors de Rosa because of this and in the meantime have have become a part of our community, which is exactly what we need is to have people come in and stay and um, 
live with us and, and share uh, on on the struggle, but also on the on the good things that we still have. As you mentioned, the fabric of the social fabric of the community and the very um, intricate nature of the human relationships that happen within the community itself. But I wondered, um, Francisco, actually, if you had some things to say about this, but obviously, Carla, as well, please do jump in. But this role of the state uh, was in within all of this and how is the corporation being held accountable throughout the process? Obviously, um, the majority of the community uh, does not want the mind there. So how, how does it work in terms of the relationship with the state? Okay, so first I'll probably start with the central state. Portugal is a very centralized country in terms of power. So everything is mostly concentrated in Lisbon. There's of course of course local governments, but they have not that many power in these kind of decisions, even though they have great importance locally. Um, and I think the, the relationship between the, the central state and the, the Barroso region has been very well described by Aida, who is uh, a woman from, from Cover de Barroso. I've interviewed for the project. It's one of the most, the most important people in, in resisting this project. And she, she, she told me once that like the state never cared about us and now they, they care about us when they, it's time to come here and and destroy the village and just take the profits from from this minerals so yeah it's been a long time of state absence from the region and i think in part the 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 process of autonomy that have developed that are so well developed in the region are a consequence of this absence of the state. And now suddenly it is important for the state because there's some resource there to be extracted. So the relationship between the state and the company is of total support. So there's even sometimes my the perception is that there's not even the, the separation that could be somehow reassuring in terms of this idea, ideal that for me does not exist of the well-regulated, well-done mining. Uh, but even this, this dystopian idea that, that doesn't even show because the state is just being the representative of, of, the, of the company's interest here and the lithium lobby here in, in Portugal. Uh, and, and we saw it so clearly with the whole environmental assessment uh, process, how the state brought uh, participation processes to a minimum required by law, uh, how they were not interested in at all in having meaningful participation processes and spaces where people could be heard and what they would say would be actually considered. So everything was just like a checkbox in terms of legal uh, requirements and also how the different state institutions that have are related to mining regulation of energy and mining projects have been subservient to the, to the company's interests. So it's there's no separation at all. Then going back to local government, surprisingly, because for me, from my experience in Ecuador and other areas, it's actually a surprise that the local 
Maya is opposing the project and has been consistently opposing the project in the past few years. It's something you don't see often uh, in this kind of struggles. Uh, and it has been important to have his support. And it, it doesn't mean that the whole local government structure shares his perspective, but he in particular has been opposing the project and has been very public in this opposition. And I think it's the most important aspect of this is, is, is that this reassures a lot of people. Thank you for that. Um, Carla, did you have anything to say in terms of your experience with this, the role of the state and also, as Francisco was just saying, about the role of the mayor and, and, and his, his consistent opposition to the mine? As Francisco said, local government does not have a great pull uh, with these decisions. But yes, it's very important that someone in a place of authority is bolstering uh, the people's the people's opposition and is seen to uh, oppose it as well because that actually provides a level of protection I would say if people have to struggle a, 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 both against the local government and the central government it would be a, a much more difficult uh, struggle I would th- I would say so it does help that we don't have to uh, fight the local governments and also that we feel the support because it's not even like, it's not a muted opinion that the mayor has. So he actively speaks out against the mining project. Great, thank you. I just wondered how the the contract and between the state and the corporation um can you explain a little bit as to how it's possible that this is still going ahead despite a member member of government that's opposing it so in the end uh the central state has the capacity of declaring this project national interest and by declaring the project national interest, it can force it to go, it can just overcome this, this blockades you put in the way. So I think, although it's, it's important that we have local governments stalling the project the way they can, in all, all the ways they can, I really believe in that. I've repeated I've repeated this so many times, also in covers in, in assembly meetings, it's like the most important thing for me is people's unity against this project, and especially people's unity around uh, the common lands and the Baldir. Uh, because even if the state comes and says, so this is a national interest project, we are going to expropriate these lands. They legally can't do that, but if people are together and they, they, they will stall it for so long, they can stall it for so long that eventually it's going to be impossible for the company to go on spending money on a project that does not proceed. So that's, that's probably where, where the powers rest is in people staying together and because it can last for decades 
we were talking before how how this is a long term process of resistance. It's actually, if we compare compare this with other resist resistances around the world, it's actually very short term resistance. We're talking about there's in Ecuador there's decade long, like two decades, three decades long resistance to to mining. Um, but actually, I think people can, even if it's declared national interest, people can stall this for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Uh, and eventually the company will give up. And this does not mean that the threat goes away because the, the threat will never go away in this when there's minerals uh, underground. The threat goes away when lithium ends up being interesting in terms of uh, like uh, ends up being a commodity. As long as lithium is a relevant commodity, the threat will be there even if you stop. The, this company, even if you stall and it's good, it's important to have these par partial victories where you can rest from all these years of struggle, but the threat will always be there as long as lithium is a commodity. Yeah, I mean, that's... Sorry, Carla, come in. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that uh, our plan is also... Not our plan, but the, the resistant method is also a way to um, use capit capitalism against capitalism. So basically, as Francisco was saying, as long as uh, lithium is a relevant uh, asset... A, a relevant com commodity it's we're still going to be threatened by it um however if um, our legal re resistance that can go on for decades as he was saying hopefully will um, end up um, making the company give up because it's going to be too expensive and it's um, and every year they're losing more and more money on a project that does not go on. And obviously their investors are not happy about that. Uh, and well, if this goes on for 10, 15 years, who's going to be left to uh, support this financially? It's not, a, it's not gonna be a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's interesting kind of thinking about just the role of the strength of just being able to keep going and persevering and, and 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 not giving up in a sense and it goes back to what we what we talked about before about you know how do people keep going and i wondered about um people's relationship to land and to the landscape and the attachment that they feel to it and it's it's not just a kind of to do with livelihoods livelihoods are really important people's incomes are really important but it's also to do with something more emotional and people's memories and and their their feelings about the place where they live and their feeling of belonging maybe i i just wondered if you could say something about that either from your own perspective or or more generally yeah i think that's very notorious uh, especially in small communities where um the the land is part of the community it's it's not just a resource uh, or <clears throat> the water the the landscape it's it's not a resource it's not seen uh, as just a resource but it's also very respected 
it's considered a part of the community. So whether we're speaking about the land or the water or nature in general, it's treated with respect and with the knowledge that they've built for centuries that you're going to be treated by the land with the same treatment that you give to it. So if you respect it, it's going to help you as well and it's going to be friendlier. Um, so Carlos do Barroso is considered as a globally important agricultural heritage system uh, by FAO, which means that the, the way that people uh, relate themselves to the land is It's also emotional, of course. So this uh, recognition, uh, it's uh, happened because the relationship between the people and the land is respectful and it's sustainable because people have um, developed this system of using the land and the water in a very responsible way and in a way that sustains the land and the water itself the um, the way that they uh, treat the land is really as part of the community. The land also depends on the way that people treat it. And if you put a mine in it, then the land is not going to respond well to, to that. Uh, huh. And uh, the water will be gone and all that. And the animals, biodiversity, everything would be wrecked. And the whole structure of the, the land would be wrecked. And this is not particular to Covers because, of course, we're speaking about this particular this particular place, but this is common to everywhere where you place a huge open pit mine, it's going to suffer uh, the consequences and it's not recoverable. It, it just doesn't happen. It's it's true. This this is not exclusive to cover the Barroso, but for me, what was really fascinating about uh, cover the Barroso and the Barroso region is that it's not that there's only that there are communities that these communities are alive, really alive. The the community made of the people who live there, their relationship with non-human nature, they form. This whole community that, that that is really really alive, uh, and for me this was a huge difference, especially compared to processes processes where the mining companies have been somehow successful in uh, destroying the community. Uh, even though, even in cases where resistance achieved victories and meaningful victories, the community has been destroyed. And for me, the fact that here the community is so strong, it's so alive and in the community, I mean the people with, with non-human nature, uh, is, is so important uh, for this resistance. And I think the most important thing to care, care for to go on with the, the struggle. Something yeah. I, I, I remember is, is that yeah. how people, you were mentioning this before when, when you addressed Parla, um, how, how people, like some people focus more on the income aspect or importance of, of the land. But for me, the interesting thing is that the, the 
women I I did research with each had a specific framing way of framing this relationship. And even though some of those work with work the land on a daily basis and depend on it as part of their income would stress this aspect, they would also stress the emotional attachment to certain places in the community. Uh, for me, it was really interesting to see how people who, uh, in the case of Katerina, for example, who was born as Carla, she was born in the village, she grew up in the village, but now she lives in London, uh, how she frames her relationship with Coverage of House, know, how, how she says it's part of my identity, these people the, that live there, they are my neighbors, even if they are not my actual neighbors. Uh, how Jessica, for example, someone who um, never lived in Kovacs, she's uh, she's the daughter of uh, people coming from this region. She grew up in Paris. How she frames a relationship with the territory and how strong that relationship is with this uh, community. It's amazing to see all these differences and how strong the community is if it has the capacity of maintaining these strong bonds between the people and the territory and human nature, even when you're not actually living there. Yes. Hmm. I've been thinking a lot when it comes to the prospect of a mine kind of entering that space that landscape that you've been describing and um as francisco has been explaining how the non-human nature is completely entangled with the human communities that live in in these areas and when when it comes to communicating these issues to the the wider world or the wider community whether that's in portugal or further afield it's often can become like an abstract issue that um is sort of over there or outside of their own lived experiences whereas for you it's it's within the places that you inhabit and within the networks that you engage with and I've been thinking recently about this term I don't know if you've come across it it's called solastalgia it has come up came I think it was an Australian psychologist who coined the term but it's been used for several decades now especially with people that are studying um, eco anxiety and climate anxiety and it refers to uh, the feelings that arise when someone's sense of place is threatened or or violated so it's a kind of melancholy or homesickness for your home although you haven't lost the home yet it's this an, or an anticipated sense of transformation that could happen to your home so when a, a threat like a mine emerges it can sort of evoke this preemptive stress felt by people who who are anticipating some kind of environmental change that might happen which in turn kind of affects your sense of home and your sense of place so I I just wondered if to both of you really to speak a bit about how the role of emotion and memory have been important in the movements that you've been part of so obviously Francisco you've also worked elsewhere um so maybe you can speak to this topic more broadly but also Carla very interested to know how potentially maybe use this as a as a tool within the the strength building within your movement okay so obviously I think that emotional the emotional responses are not only to the the threat of 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 the mind 
other extracted extracted projects is also the emotions uh, of of struggling against this on an uh, on a daily basis. For me, the biggest difference probably between Cobresuvaroso and the Pace Award working with in Ecuador is is these different moments the resistance is. So in, in Barroso, we have the community, as I said before, the community is alive, the community is united, but the social tissue is strong. And this is a big, big aspect of in, in putting the, on stopping and on blocking the, uh, the, the mind. On the other hand, in the, in the Ecuadorian case, there's the community, the community is dead. They, they, they still manage to stop the project. So they have a court injunction to the project that has been in place since 2018. But the mine, the mining interests are still operating and are still contributing to divide people. And the scars are so profound, they're so strong that people have no hope. When we talk with people about, do you think it's possible to have a community again for people to get together again to go over these divisions between miners and anti-miners people say i find it very hard for that to happen maybe in a very long 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 time and actually they say the only solution might be time but overall the sense is of despair there's this spirit of division uh, the threat the violence looming all over, all the time, uh, because of the presence of illegal miners, and this is fostered by mining interests in the region. People have been killed. It, 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 it's it's a completely different scenario. Yeah, uh, we've been speaking a lot about the livelihoods uh, that would be put in, well, that would be finished basically for the community there. Uh. But that's um, it's also the community that is at risk. Like if the mining project went through, the the mine is about two hundred to five hundred meters away from the closest homes. So it's very close to the village. It's right on top of it. The noise and dust and disruption that it would provoke, along with capturing the water resources of the region, it would make it basically impossible to continue to live there. So people would have to leave. It, it's not going to be possible to build that community exactly as it is elsewhere. The sense of community that they have now would be lost. And that's like, like Anushka was saying, the feeling of... Um, preemptive nostalgia. I believe that's one of the factors that is keeping people um, committed to the struggle is knowing that it's not just that they wouldn't, that they would lose the life, their livelihoods or their homes or the lands uh, physically. It's also that they would lose each other, that the neighbors wouldn't be neighbors anymore. So, yeah, that's a very relevant uh, feature of, of, this, uh, of this whole process that I believe is boosting the resistance to the project. 
Can I just ask in terms of how the company foresees the effects on the community? Like, is it assumed that in the circumstance that the mine went ahead, the town would remain as it is? Or how have they presented it in terms of their vision? Would they, do they think that it's acceptable that the town would continue? Yeah, basically they've presented it as um, unrealistically as possible. So uh, they they believe that the community would still remain and that they would employ the people from the community. But we're speaking about people that are mostly older, so over 40, and they wouldn't be retraining to be mining contractors. So, and also they're presenting this as a project that could perfectly live next to a, a village and that's for that they've made some consent concessions which is <laughs> it's no we don't see it that way uh, which would be that allegedly reduce the usage of water by reusing uh, water from rainfall so they would keep that water and then reuse it and also that they wouldn't be provoking the the explosions in the rock during the night but that would still go on throughout all of the day and yeah you, nobody wants to live with constant noise from explosions and so yeah as far as we're concerned there it wouldn't be possible to co-live with a mining project of that dim- dimension because it's planned to be in in operation for 12 years and yeah the explosions aren't going to stop because they're basically um leveling a whole uh, mountain well a couple of a mountain range let's put it like that so yeah it's it it wouldn't be a a possibility but it's been framed by that by the uh, company and it's been accepted as fact by the regulatory agency, which is, well, for me personally, that's really more outrageous because we can understand the in, the interest of the company in framing the, the situation like that, but that the regulatory agency actually pretends to buy that uh, theory is actually more outrageous. Um, I would probably have two aspects. One has to do with the technicalities, the other with the company's expectations when they arrive in coverage de Bavos. So with respect to the technicalities, despite the fact that I think EIAs are not proper tools for assessing impact, the fact that this is that the EIA for this particular project is really, really, really bad. It's crazy how does noise, the blasts, everything, just the effects stop one, two, three meters from the nearest house. This is the environmental impact assessment. Yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's it's just, it's it's a joke, honestly. And it's, I know that the total impact assessment is always the less important people who are in charge of evaluating this. 
these uh, documents, they don't really care much about the social aspect of it. The, the social impact assessment in this EIA it does not exist. And it's stated there, it says there. We don't have any uh, an environmental impact assessment. We are going to be doing it next. And the, and the EIA was approved, even though there is no in the social impact assessment being done. And even though that is recognized in the document. So that's the level of, uh, of the technical assessment that has been done on, on this project. And then it come, this comes also to the company's expectations. Because it's pretty clear now that Savannah arrived in Covers de Barroso. First, they didn't tell the people there was going to be a mine. Second, when people realized there was a mine, they thought the people would be just putting a red carpet and say, thank you for bringing us jobs. Thank you for bringing us development. And they completely misread reality. And that this has been the big mistake for, for Savannah. Because people there, they don't need that jo the jobs in the mine. They don't want the jobs in the mine. And I'm saying this because in most resistance projects, the main challenge is that people actually need jobs. They need income. So having to question this jobs offer that is most, almost all the times uh, an exaggerated one is difficult. Here, there's no difficulty. People don't need these jobs in the mine. People don't want to go work in the mine. There's no people available locally to work in the mine. So it's like, thank you, our offering is something we don't need, we don't want to destroy our community. So they completely failed in their assessment. I remember Katerina used to say how the investors, uh, there's like this forum where the people who invest in Savannah talk uh, about the project, about stocks. Uh, someone just put their Oh, oh no, they are protesting. Just wait when fridges start entering their houses and resistance just goes away. So this is the level of thinking of these people. Uh, and they completely misread the community, how the capacity of the community to unite against this project, the community's expectations. And this has been good that they have completely misread the, the, the community. Yeah, and presumably they... they... They're involved in other mining projects elsewhere where they've been able to get have some success. And so they assumed that maybe it'll be a, a similar scenario. And when they arrive, the, the, there's like this the traditional cake that is eaten in Portugal in in early January. And they just went and sent the cake to every house. This kind of things. That's what they were doing as part of their policy, just sending a cake to people's houses. And like the majority of people just sent the cake back or didn't accept it. So, Custard tarts. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. no, no. It's, <laughs> no. Like a, it's like a, a, a different cake that is eaten in January. It's called the, the, the direct transition, the king's cake. Is it like uh, ro Roscon that they have in Spain? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, it's like yeah, the Roscon. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny. No, it's funny how someone comes a company comes and thinks that this is going to work. It's mm. just absurd. That that's the level of thinking they have. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, it doesn't insulting. quite make up for having a huge open cast mine on the. It is <laughs> insulting. Yeah. 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 yeah.
we've spoken a lot about memory and emotions and the long-term feature of this struggle in, in the life of people living in this area. But one of the things we wanted to ask about now is the actual organisation of the struggle itself. So I'm not going to try and pronounce it in Portuguese because I know I'm going to butcher it, but the English translation is no to the mine, yes to life. This has been one of the slogans for the mobilization against the mine and in, in many other countries as well. It's a similar statement, but I wondered if you could talk a bit about the organizing structures that you deploy for the anti-mining efforts and sort of maybe a bit about the facilitation methods that you use to bring people together. Okay, so the, the resistance started as a real grassroots movement. It was basically just the people in the village. And then we started to get some other people interested and involved. And also trying to learn from other regions of the country and other regions in the world, how the resistance is built, what we need. But again, this is done with very few resources, uh, financial and human. But we've been able to gather a lot of allies, a lot of friends throughout the, the world. And third year that we're organizing a, a camp in Covas de Borrozo that invites everyone to visit and find out about what we're doing. And also, it it um, other than involving the community with outsiders and with people that potentially want to get involved in the the struggle it also provides a lot of tools for everyone so for outsiders and also for the community and promotes very interesting discussions about what is done elsewhere and also what we've been doing and what we can do uh, in the future so it does it's going to be the third edition of this camp where People who visit will be involved in the community processes and livelihood. They'll learn all about the place and about what we do there, how we live there. But also um, they'll bring the knowledge of other struggles around the world and how to build resistance and keep on building this resistance that we've managed to grow so far. I've mentioned it starts as a local struggle against this project, but then it develops links with other struggles throughout the world, especially through the ES to Life, not to mining uh, platform. And Katarina has been the liaison, the link um, uh, with with this network, uh, also with other groups in um, in other regions of Portugal and other solidarity groups throughout the world that have come mostly through the, the camp. Uh, I think probably in terms of in organizing internally, it's interesting because the challenge is not on having unity against the mind. I think that that is something that exists in, in coverage of Bajos. I'm talking now internally. Uh, people are against the mind and people are strong in their tanks against the mining. The, the mind the challenge is to have more people politically involved in, in, in resistance on, or involved in resistance on a daily basis. 
It has to do with structure, structural aspects that are not exclusive to Portugal, like challenges to participation, difficulties on having people engaging in participating politically. Uh, but even though it's not something that only happens in Portugal, I think it's very strong here in Portugal. People are not used to engage in politically, to participate in public life. Uh, and it shows, it shows on a daily basis in resistance. And I think that's probably one of the main challenges on, in organizing resistance is to have not more people against the mind. That's, that's the good part we, we have is having more people, uh, on a daily basis, uh, participating in, in, in the tasks of opposing this mind on, on a daily level. Yeah, it's a difference between having support, but how yeah, how it, how much they're able to, or they feel able to, to get involved in the the practices of of doing yeah, especially things. Especially on the on the daily requirements of mm -hmm. resistance, because then some punctual, some sporadic aspects. Yeah, the people come, and people do participate, but there are tasks, there are responsibilities, there are things that need to be done daily. Mm -hmm. And when you have few people doing this, it, it, it's very tiring for the people to bear these uh, responsibilities on their shoulders on a daily basis. So, in Spain, at least, especially in the north of Spain, I'm familiar with a movement mobilizing against wind turbines and kind of using the narrative of yes to renewables but not like this so moving into the topic around the paradoxes and fallacies and hypocrisies in the extractive activities that come along with the minerals required for developing renewable energy infrastructure so the practices involved with fossil fuel extraction have always been rooted in colonial and imperialist logics and there's a lot of discussion around sacrifice zones amongst people and places that are deemed less important than the benefits um, of a resource that's being extracted. So the European Commission claims that it could introduce targets into legislation, for example, that at least 30% of the EU's demand for refined lithium should originate from the EU by 2030. I was doing a bit of research around it and there's currently 10 potentially viable lithium projects in the EU and three of them are in Portugal. And that researchers suggest that if all of these plants become operational, it would probably be enough for the EU to have the majority of its own supply. But then obviously the biggest question that kind of looms within this scramble is whose lives and what ecological systems will be disrupted, harmed or even erased through this process. So... I wanted to pose it to you that the proposed mining project in your case can be seen as yet another example of corporate enclosure um, of land within a broader green capitalist agenda, um, as we've already mentioned a little bit about, which looks at technology as being the saviour. Um, and so I just wondered if, and I want to put it to both of you as well, to get both of your experiences about how you make sense of the need for transition justice in all of this because on the one hand there is the the issue in the background of outsourcing the impacts of energy consumption 
from Europe and the need for a renewable energy transition, but then on the other hand, to address the means through which these energies are currently being developed. And so there's a lot within that to kind of unpack, but I would just really like to get your thoughts on, on these topics. I think that it, it's frequent read or listen to people saying that the people opposing this project, are opposing the carbonization policies and the transition. It's, it's actually insulting that a place that has been an example for generations of fighting uh, climate change is now being accused of uh, opposing the decarbonization policies. And, it, it, and it's a, a, a false narrative, actually, because everyone talks about we need, okay, so uh, we'll need more lithium, we need more critical raw materials. So they talk about how we supply them. And no one is talking about the demand. Obviously, if the policy, and you just look at the mobility strategy in Europe, says, okay, we are going to do a technology transition. We are not doing an energy transition or decarbonization. It's like it's a technology transition from fossil fuels to electric vehicles. That's what's being proposed. You might, you might have in the mobility strategy some nice words about diversification in public transportation and so on, but that's just wishful thinking and no actual, no concrete measures in that direction. So obviously, when your choice of policy is just to transition from one technology to the other, because of course you cannot threaten the interests of the car industry, which is so strong in the world. As they say in that same document, it represents, I don't know how many percent of the GDP, but when they are saying this, they're saying this is important. We're not going to touch this. Obviously, that you need a certain supply of lithium. Instead, if your policy would go in a different direction, prioritize public transportation, then you will need less electric vehicles and you'll need much less lithium, and probably you wouldn't have to open new mines for this. So it's, it's a political decision here. And it's a false narrative when they say that this is necessary for decarbonization. This is only necessary if that's the only way. There, we're going back to this Tina idea, there is no other alternative. This is the alternative, and you don't have to comply with this alternative. If you don't comply, you are against uh, ending up fossil fuels. And people here are very conscious, conscious and saying, no, we are not against the energy transition. We are against this transition, which means that the costs are being displaced. Because, yeah, it's true, we have a problem with fossil fuels. We have climate change as an issue. We have the problem of emissions in the cities as well, especially in the cities. But we are just displacing the impacts to other new regions. We are creating new sacrifice zones. And this can't be acceptable. And this doesn't, doesn't need to be the, the way. There are other if we are willing to tackle the economic interests, but that's something capitalism doesn't, doesn't want to do. So they, they are presenting this as the only solution. And yes, building on what Francisco was saying, sacrifice zones is a very important topic here because the region where Covas do Barroso is uh, integrated 
in the in the country it has already been considered sort of a sacrifice zone we're responsible for a lot of the clean energy that is produced with windmills with dams so a lot of that energy is already being produced here and also as i said in the beginning we're very very much in a disadvantage in terms of public services so uh, public transport health uh, education and it's all it's all services that are not readily available for the population there so in the portuguese um, ecosystem we're already the underdog and then if you take it to a broader perspective in the eu then portugal is also an underdog and it's also uh, a place that can be well i would say it's expendable and the idea is also that some places are expendable and others are not and usually the very urban and developed developed places are never expendable um and those are the ones that are actually emitting the most um the most emissions right the most carbon emissions and again as francisco said we're not with this transition uh, in commerce we're not trying to save the planet this is not a um a plan that would allow to the planet to be saved or better yet humanity to be saved and uh, the planet will probably still be here uh, very long after we're gone what we're doing here is not saving the environment or reversing the climate change what the plan is not what we're doing but what the pl plan apparently is is to transition into a new form of movement of locomotion that does does still imply that the car industry is alive and well that everyone gets their own car and that's not a transition that's keeping things exactly as they are but instead of exhausting fossil fossil fuels you're exhausting then lithium and whatever comes next next in the list so you keep exploring the planet for of course different resources but still so nothing is changing the nothing is transitioning so the the sacrifice zone is for nothing and Barroso is going to be destroyed and other many other places are have been and are going to be destroyed and we don't feel like that's fair to keep things exactly as they are to make sure that capitalism is alive that the car industry is alive and well and i know that represents a lot of jobs our jobs are so important <laughs> this we can't be we can't be sacrificing one thing for the other for another one and not giving a good enough excuse for that or a good enough explanation um or not even being honest about it because that's what we're doing we're just replacing the the exploits that we're doing on the planet to keep everything just the way it is um i'd like to tell everyone that even though um electric cars are kind of a novelty still i know they're much more 
available now, but there's still a novelty, but there's already been for a few years um, an, a competition that's similar to Formula One with electric cars. That's a sport, apparently. That's not where we should be spending the lithium that we already have. Not on a sport, not on a entertainment for very rich people, <laughs> for billionaires. It's not reasonable use of lithium. And we're also not investing in recycling the lithium that's already been extracted. Climate justice uh, comes in there because Covers Rose is actually a very good example of how you can be sustainable and you can respect the land and be respected back. Uh, so we feel like we should be treated uh, treated as an example and not as a sacrifice land. You mentioned something important, Carla. Is obviously, it's not just the weight uh, of the car industry in the GDP, or of uh, the number of people working in this industry. So I think that that needs to be something uh, that it's something that needs to be addressed. But having that in mind, we shouldn't be talking about sacrifice zones. We should be talking about sacrificing industries and the car industry uh, and the idea of everyone has their own private electric vehicle needs to be sacrificed. Uh, urgently, uh, otherwise we are just displacing problems somewhere else. Yeah, thank you, Francisco and Carla. How can people find out more or uh, what should people do if they want to sort of support what you're doing or know more about it? Uh, we have a website and also social network accounts that uh, that people can visit. You'll find a lot of information there, of course, and also what we've been doing, what we plan to do next. And yeah, people can always contact us directly if they want to get involved or if they want to ask about us, if if they like to broadcast uh, our voice like you're doing. We really appreciate it. It's a very important thing. Francisco, do you have anything to add? Yes, one is uh, this Barroso Seminas, which means Barroso Without Minds, is the website for the camp uh, that happens every year now. It's third edition this year. So maybe people have the chance to come or maybe next year. We hope there's one next year. It's tiring to organize this and it's been three years, so we don't know. Um, and there's many ways you can help, actually. And... I think it's important uh, you can support by disseminating inform the information. You can can write us if with ideas for how you could support us. I think one of the most important aspects, even though we have a legal team working uh, on the case, uh, but I always insist in this, it's totally different to have uh, as well people who who have legal expertise, uh, but at the same time are engaged in these struggles. And I think we are missing this. It's extremely important to have activists, uh, anti-mining activists, uh, who know about the legal aspects, especially the legal aspects in Europe and in Portugal, who can support us. We desperately need that. We have 
who is supporting us legally and is also uh, committed to this struggle. He's not doing just as a part of a professional relationship. This makes a huge, huge difference. And I think it's probably, if I would prioritize our needs at the moment, this would be one of them. So if some people will be listening to this podcast or contacts who might be working on these aspects, I invite you to contact us and support us. I just wanted to say, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to hear about what you've been doing and um, incredibly inspiring, but also, yeah, we recognize that you've gone through a lot. So I really, really appreciated hearing about it and hope that people will be able to, to get on board and, and connect to what you're doing if if they're able to and if that's something that they feel that they can commit to. Yeah, I also think it's important to recognise as well, I really appreciate talking us through the emotional side of it all. I mean, I know that you've spoken to many people about this topic over and over. It's also, um, yeah, it's an emotional labor to have to keep reliving your personal lived experiences of it so i'm really grateful that you've shared that with us today You're all welcome to go and visit come and visit Bobash anytime the only big risk of doing it is that you probably want to stay <laughs>